That song right there is the message. My oh my, that that's a that's a lot easier said than done, isn't it? I thought what they were singing. I thought, man, to sing that song, wow! I tell you, that's that that's that's powerful stuff right there. Amen. Well, we are dealing with our Bible Truth series. We've been talking about the King, and um, last week, of course, we jumped right on in and we started talking about Jacob. And uh, we spent some time uh, basically walking through his life just a little bit there as we know that he's part of the line of the king. And uh, we talked about the fact that, of course, uh, after he had deceived his father and uh, ultimately was shipped on out to uh, Laban, his father-in-law, uh, we know that uh, he was deceived himself. And, uh, well, that created some real problems. And there was this real contention between Leah and Rachel. And we said how Jacob favored Rachel more than Leah. And we said we could understand that, remembering how he was deceived by his father-in-law in the beginning. However, favoring one of the wives over the other, no matter the reason, we said it only brought division and devastation to the family. It created a lot of problems. And we, we talked about how J Jacob's favoritism would ignite feelings of envy or animosity and anger on the part of his children toward one another. How even in our own lives, whether we feel justified in our actions based on our past or present hurt, we can't dismiss, uh, you know, we can't stop responding correctly. We've got to do the right thing anyway. And uh, we've got to do the biblical thing, the spiritual thing. And so to neglect right for any reason would only produce more wrong. And we see that in his life, and we see that in his children, and ultimately they're so angry about what's taking place in their home that they eventually, there's so much hate that's built up, they even, well, they even conspire to kill Joseph. And so um, we talked about that, and we addressed that, and that's kind of where we ended. And then we were going to get into this 
aspect of the line of the king. And I said, we don't want to go there because I don't want to just rush through it because I have another thought that I want to share along the way. And so that's what we're going to pick up. We know that Jacob now has got a family. We know that he's uh, gone back home. We know that Esau did not kill him or his family. And uh, now we're going to see that ultimately uh, they're in Egypt now. And uh, Jacob and his offspring are in Egypt. And uh, that's kind of where we're picking things up. And that's where we're going to learn about the next in line of the king, in the line of the king. So let's go ahead and have a word of prayer. Father, we come to you. We do ask that you would speak to our hearts tonight. We're needy people, Lord. I know I am. And I'm asking you to fill me with your spirit and allow me to be your mouthpiece tonight. Lord, I, uh, I don't have anything in and of myself, Father, to offer. I, I have this old flesh. And there's nothing good that dwelleth in this old flesh, Lord. We know that. And so, Father, I ask that you would just take control of me and allow me, Father, to be again, a tool in your hand to be used for the purpose of edifying and exhorting the brethren and sisters in Christ. And we just pray that you'd be with every listening ear and may we hear with spiritual ears and may our hearts be stirred tonight. May we be encouraged by this simple truth that we're going to learn tonight. Uh, and, and it's really nothing new, Lord, you know that. It's just kind of packaged in another way. And Lord, again, we just need reminded of this truth because, Lord, I believe it truly does inspire me at so many times to just keep on going. And I just pray you just bless us now and meet our needs and continue to work in our lives. We'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. So concerning the line of the king, Jacob would have six children by Leah, two by Bilhah, Rachel's servant, two by Zilpah, Leah's servant, and two by Rachel. And that makes 12 in all. And we know that there are 12 tribes uh, in Israel. And so we see that ultimately Jacob is the father there. And he's, his offspring are going to become a great nation. So when it comes to the king, it would only make sense that the promise would pass to Jacob's firstborn, Reuben. And that's what it, we would think. Because a lot of times that's how it went down. But that wasn't how it would be. And neither was that the case with Esau and Jacob either. We know that God skipped Esau and chose Jacob, even though, remember, when, when the two of those children came out, they were twins, but we know Jacob was holding on to Esau's heel, and so, in essence, he was not the firstborn, and God chose Jacob over Esau. Well, then, if that's not the case, it would only make sense that it would be Jacob's favorite. That's who would be in the line of the king. That's who would ultimately uh, receive that blessing. Well, that seems logical, but once again, that's, well, you know what? That's God's business. It's not man's business, right? And it wouldn't be till the end of Jacob's life that God's, God's desire and his design concerning the line of the king was made known. Now, Joseph, he ascends to honor in Egypt, right? I mean, he goes there and he's maligned and mistreated. We know that he ends up in Potiphar's house as a slave. We know that he ends up in prison and ultimately God gets him out and he's elevated to this unbelievable position of honor in Egypt. A great famine, of course, brought his brethren to him in search of food. And he reveals himself and he ultimately brings his family to Egypt in order to sustain them and to care for them. And that's what every mother and father's desire is for their children, that you will care for us in our old age. 
moving on. <laughs> but not too quickly. <laughs> so, oh, my. It's, yeah, but anyway. <clears throat> so now they've lived in Egypt, all right? They've been there now for 17 years. 17 years Jacob's been in Egypt now. And uh, Jacob would become very ill. And before his death, he would extend his blessing and prophecies concerning his children and their offspring. This is when we find God's designated next in line of the king. Turn, if you would, to Genesis chapter 49. Here's where we learn who's going to be next in line. Genesis chapter 49. We're going to look at verses 8 through 10. Chapter 49, beginning in verse 8. Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. <clears throat> now again, Jacob is going through each of his sons and he's giving a blessing. And that blessing is also prophetical. And in this case, it's going to be quite obvious that that's the case. Notice Judah, verse 8. <clears throat> thou art he whom thy brother shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stood, he stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as an old lion who shall rouse him up. The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come, <clears throat> and until him shall the gathering of the people be. So here in this passage, God makes it clear that he's neither choosing Reuben, the firstborn, nor is he choosing Joseph, who would only make sense, seeing that he rose to grandeur, that he would be a tremendous leader. God said, no, we're going to choose Judah. We're going to choose Judah instead. And so he picks the fourth son of Leah. That's interesting, isn't it? And uh, he inserts him into the lineage leading to the king. Now, <clears throat> notice in the passage, verse 9, Jacob saw the lion. Again, 49.9, Judah is a lion's whelp from the prey. My son, thou art gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion, and as an old lion, who shall rouse him up? Again, Jacob's over here, and I don't know if he was seated that day. I don't know if he was laying down, but <clears throat> what we do know is that when those boys came before him, he gave prophetical utterances. He shared things about their future and about where and how they would function in life and their offspring. And Judah shows up, and he begins to focus, and, and, and he sees Judah, and God gives him a vision of this lion. That's something. Even as a lion is king among beasts, Judah would be the royal tribe. No one would mess with Judah in the day of his power. And whether he, as the passage is talking about, was a mere cub, a young lion, or an old lion taking his ease, Judah was to be the king. From the beginning to the end, sovereignty was Judah's. 
Now, I don't think that Jacob had a clue. I don't think he understood that Jesus Christ would be the lion of the tribe of Judah when he shared that prophetical blessing. I don't believe he knew that. But the Spirit of God was speaking through him. We see evidence of that even in the writers of the the, the Word of God. We we recognize that holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So therefore, I believe that this man, Jacob, was moved by the Holy Spirit. I don't think he had a perfect vision of the future. I think he just knew what God had told him. Revelation chapter 5, verse 5. Turn there. What a tremendous passage. As we recognize that and, and again, I know we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. We say we're on the, 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 you know, narrowing down the king. Yeah, of course. Well, we just found him real quick, but we'll forget about that after this lesson. <clears throat> but Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, notice what it says. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah... The root of David hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. Once again, weep not, behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. It's talking about Jesus Christ. And we see here that Jacob saw the lion. But Jacob saw the Lord too. Back there in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, the Bible says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Now the name Shiloh, it comes from the same root word or Hebrew word as Shalom, which means peace. In Jacob's prophecy, this word Shalom refers not to a place, but a person. And it points to that true prince of peace who would one day receive the scepter of absolute and universal dominance. That's, that's again, the Lord Jesus Christ. But we see here that Shiloh refers to peace. So when he talks about this, he says, basically not, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come, until peace come. And peace meaning a person, Jesus Christ. You say, how do you know that? Well, in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, the Bible says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. So Jacob over here, he's given, so to speak, his, he's, he's sharing his his blessings with his children he's sharing even what would become prophetical and he's talking now he looks at judah and he says wait a second i'm seeing a lion here wait a second i see the lord in all this and he begins to make it clear here so this king would come from judah's line and of course we know that indeed is the case as we look back What an amazing blessing it would be. I mean, what more could a person desire than to be given part in the Messianic line? I mean, Jacob gave Judah everything he had, so to speak, the very best that he could. You know, and if he was operating in the flesh that day, if Jacob was in the flesh, he would have certainly handed that sovereignty into the hand of Joseph, who once again had proven himself to be quite worthy of leadership. But the spiritual man said, no, it's Judah. I'm going to just obey God. 
And let's be honest, sometimes in our own lives, we have a tendency to think we know best. I mean, Judah could have easily said, wait a second. Now, it's obvious who ought to be in the line. It's obvious who ought to ultimately hold a scepter. I mean, look, he's doing it in this life. Look, it's got to be Joseph. He's got to be the one he's talking about. He's already there in a sense. The only thing left is to be literally Pharaoh himself. I mean, he's the man. But that wasn't what God intended. And so, fortunately for us, Jacob didn't follow the flesh. Instead, he followed the Lord and the Spirit, and he put his stamp on Judah, just like God had told him to do. See, God's leadership always, it, it often defies human, human logic, doesn't it? In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, the Bible says, But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. So with that said, who was Judah? Who was Judah? That's a great question. We remember how Joseph's brothers threw him in a pit and conspired to kill him. The oldest brother, of course, was Reuben. And Reuben was the one who ultimately, he argued against this course of action. He's the one that said, wait a second, let's not kill Joseph. Come on now, fellas. And he intended to go and intended to return and then free him. Or at least that's what seems to be the case. <clears throat> but while the brothers are sitting around eating some lunch, and Reuben has now taken leave, a caravan approaches. And Judah, he comes up with a plan to sell Joseph to the caravan merchants as a slave. Judah says, you know what, hold on. It'd be a waste of our, why, why would we just murder him? Let's sell him. That's Judah. In Genesis 37, 26, turn there, would you, and let's follow that. Let's look what he says here. I mean, Judah's all about the prophet, man. He wants to make a buck. Let's not just do this just to do it. I mean, we're gonna, we're gonna do, we might as well make a few dollars. Notice what he says in Genesis 37, 26 and 27. And Judah said unto his brethren, What profit is it if we slay our brother and conceal his blood? <laughs> okay. Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. <clears throat> let, our, let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother in our flesh, and his brethren were content. I mean, he is our brother after all, kind of. Let's not kill him, let's sell him. And so the brothers agreed, and Joseph was sold and taken to Egypt. Now, after selling uh, Joseph into slavery, Judah, the Bible tells us, left his brothers and went down to stay with a man, a man of a dulem named Hiram, Hira, Hira, H-I-R-A-H. Look at Genesis 38.1, <clears throat> Genesis chapter 38, verse 1. Now, there's going to be a number of things in chapter 38 about Judah, and I'm not going to read them all, I'm going to highlight them because of time. 
while he's down here now in chapter 38, it says it came to pass at that time that Judah went down from his brethren and turned into a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira or Hira. Now, it is while he is there that Judah marries a Canaanite woman and he has three sons. His sons' names are Ur, Onan, and Shelah, or Shelah. Ur was given a wife by the name of Tamar. Ah, now it's starting to click, isn't it? But see, Ur was such a wicked man that the Lord killed him. So then after the passing of Ur, that leaves Tamar in need of offspring, because there was no children yet. So following the custom concerning marriage, Tamar was given to Ur's brother Onan. And I know to you guys, that's gross. But that's the way it was. That's the way it was done in Bible days, Old Testament Bible days. And so she was then given to the brother who refused to give Tamar children. And as a result of his disobedience to God, he was killed. So now Judah goes down here to, well, this particular location. And he marries a Canaanite. He has three children. Now two of them have died because they were either... Wicked or rebellious. Judah's son, Shelah, was too young to take a wife at the time. So Judah orders Tamar to live as a widow in her father's house till the youngest son grows up, becomes old enough to marry. At which time he will then take Tamar and give her seed, uh, give her children for, uh, under the name of her, her, her her husband. Because see, when, when your brother dies and you have no children, then she goes to the other brother. But when the brother has children with her, the children have the name of the brother that passed. Well, after several years, Judah's own wife dies. Now Judah's wife passes. And he's grieving. And when he kind of recovers from his grieving or he gets past the grieving period of time, he travels to Timnah, uh, Timnah and, and there he's going to oversee some sheep, the shearing of sheep. Tamar is still a widow, by the way. Tamar never remarried. Tamar never was given the boy, the, the youngest son. Never. It never came up. Go to your father's house and wait for him. When he grows up, he'll marry you and give offspring to you and unto your seed, so to speak. And it never happened. Judah never followed through with his promise. And so now here he is overseeing the shearing of the sheep. Tamar being a widow. Here's that her father-in-law was coming there and so she devises a plan. Tamar puts on a veil and she pretends to be a prostitute on the roadside. The veil hides her identity. Judah ends up having a relationship with her. She becomes, she ends up with child. Which of course was her goal all along, by the way. Three months later, when Judah finds out that his daughter-in-law 
is with child, he is so angry he can't see straight. He says, bring her forth and let her be burnt. It's going to kill her. Because she's supposed to be chaste, right? She's supposed to be upright. She's supposed to be of good moral standing. Hmm. But as she's being brought forth to be punished as a harlot, Tamar produces evidence that her her pregnancy was due to Judah's own immorality. Wait a second. Before you burn me, let's talk about what you did. Right? What's good for the goose is good for the gander. I have no idea what that means, but we used to say it a lot. And so Judah sees his hypocrisy and he repents of it and he says, she hath been more righteous than I because that I gave her not to Shelah, my son. I did not follow through with my word. I withheld my son from her. I treated her with no respect. I totally disregarded my promise to my daughter-in-law. So here's the thought. Judah certainly wasn't the model brother. Remember, he's, let's sell him. I mean, let's get some money out of him, okay? Let's sell him into slavery. He's leading the charge there. Not a very model brother. Judah doesn't appear to be the model dad. I mean, two of the three sons is killed because of their wickedness. So he's obviously not doing too good as a dad. They say two out of three ain't bad, but it should be the other way around. Should have been one dying and two living. This was a mess. He's doing something wrong here. He wasn't the model Christian. His wife passes away. Not only did he lie to his daughter-in-law, not only did he not keep his word, but now we find him being immoral and justifying his immorality. Why? Because he had been hurt from the loss of his wife. We talked about that last week. He responds incorrectly and justifies it because of his pain. Not a model Christian. So he's not a model brother. He's not a model father. He's not a model Christian. But it does appear and seem that somehow Judah, at some point, must have repented of his evil along the way. Or at least it would seem that way. But even if he didn't, The fact is, is that God chose Judah to be in the line of the king. I don't know about you, but that's amazing to me. It reminds us more than ever of the marvelous grace of God. It's not condoning Judah's actions. That's not what God was doing here. 
God was never once condoning his immorality. God never once condoned the fact that he lied to people and didn't keep his word. God was not in any way endorsing his anger, his hatred, or his, 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 his attitude toward his brother. No, he wasn't endorsing any of that. But in the end, I got to believe somehow, some way, that Judah must have repented along the way, and it seems or appears that he might have done so after the incident with Tamar. Either way, however, we, we do know is that at the end of Jacob's life, when Judah stands before him and he issues out the, the directives that he's going to give concerning his sons and ultimately the prophetical futures, Judah is picked and chosen by God in spite of all the mess. Man, that is just a direct picture of God's marvelous grace. We sing a song, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. T'was blind, but now I see. That's all the grace of God. You know, we can look at Judah and we can point our fingers and we can say, boy, old Judah, he's such a wicked man. Old Judah, man, he is all, he's immoral, that man there. He has no integrity, no character. Yet he's in the line of the king. How do you justify that? You don't. You simply say it's God's grace. And can I tell you, not one of us deserves to be where we are with God either. And that's the thing. We get all high and mighty and somehow we put on our little suits and our dresses and we act like we're all spiritual. And the fact is, is that if we were honest with ourselves and others, we have to admit there's nothing good about us and we ought to burn in hell. But thank God for his grace. I don't know what you've done in your life, whether in the past or present, but I do know that God's grace is marvelous. Romans chapter 5 verse 20 says, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That is the verse that depicts Judah's life. Grace did much more abound. Can I tell you, that's the verse that depicts all of our lives today. Grace did much more abound. Thank God for his grace. Thank God that he can use people like Judah, use people like me, use people like you. Isn't that a wonderful thing? And to think, we're not only in the line of the king, we are literally in Christ Jesus. <laughs> that is grace. And so we learned that the king would come through Eve, Shem, then Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now Judah. We're narrowing down the field, and soon we're going to meet the king. Remember, we're forgetting what we talked about earlier. Boy, isn't it a wonderful thing to think about the marvelous grace of God. Let's not be guilty, however, of taking advantage of the grace. And this isn't part of the message, but I do want you to look at Romans very, very quickly, would you please? And we'll close with this.
Verse chapter 6 of the book of Romans, verse 1. This is where the danger lies, because we do serve a God that is so, so gracious. But there's also a warning comes with that wonderful grace. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Shall we continue to just revel in unrighteousness and sin? Shall we continue to follow through with sin knowing that, that, that we can always point to grace? Look at the marvelous grace. Look at how wicked I am and yet God loves me in spite of it all. No, we don't want to do that. No, we, it's time for us, according to verse 4, to walk in newness of life now. The grace was putting us in Christ. And of course, every day we experience His grace. But are we going to abuse that grace? God forbid. God forbid. Let's not use our grace as a license to sin. But thank God for the grace and the privilege it is to serve a God who will take everybody and anybody less than what we ought to be and use us in spite of ourselves. Man, that's wonderful stuff. Boy, we are so blessed today. Father, we come to you. We thank you for all you do for us. We just ask that you just bless work and move in our lives. Thank you, Father, for just the wonderful picture of grace that we see in Judah's life. Lord, how the fact is, is that we ourselves are just mere humans in this old flesh. And Father, we fall miserably short of what we ought to be on behalf of you. And yet you have extended your grace and mercy to us and we can't thank you enough for doing so. Father, help us, Lord, to realize that there is not one thing we cannot do with your power and presence in our life. There's no way the devil can hold us back if we'll just lean on you and not our own understanding. We don't have to let our past performance or our failures, so to speak, keep us from moving forward and succeeding on your behalf. Thank you for your marvelous grace and mercy in our lives. We give you the glory for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand. Every head bowed, every eye closed.